Do any of you have any irrational fears? All rational? I knew a guy in Arizona whose greatest fear was sharks. I don't think you have to worry about that one here. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I They don't happen that often, but occasionally I wake up in a cold sweat. When we were at the church in Arizona, I taught this new attendees class, and I would usually have between 15 people in there somewhere in that neighborhood. And I had a script I worked from, and I would had handouts I had made, and I relied heavily on those for the class, but for some reason, I never showed up without them. <laughs> I always had them. For some reason, every now and then, I have this dream where I sit down to teach that class, and I don't have anything. I don't have a Bible. I don't have notes. I don't have handouts. And like, I, I, I wake up in this panic, and it's completely irrational because I don't even teach that class anymore. I mean, it, and it's something that never happened. It's something that I don't, I don't understand why that thing is stuck in my brain and every now and then will come up. You know, if you have had children, you've probably experienced what I occasionally experience with a four-year-old, in that a four-year-old can be exhausted and in need of sleep in the worst way, and you get everything set just right, and they're water-filled, and the lullabies on, and the nightlight on, and five minutes after you put them to bed, they're downstairs saying, I'm scared of the dark. It's not dark in your room. <laughs> There's a light in there. Well, I'm scared. Of what? We have a safe house. You have a God that loves you, who gave a, you a daddy that would never let anyone hurt you. What are you afraid of? I'm scared. <laughs> I, I think how I occasionally feel with that and doing my best to have patience and to try to draw out whatever is causing the fears, maybe how Paul is feeling writing this and, and having to write the letter after being with them and teaching them about the rapture, about the tribulation, about the second coming of our Lord and Savior, that, you know, they're... they're false teachers telling them, yep, those people that died, they missed out. And so he has to write 1 Thessalonians. And, no, we who are alive and well will be caught up together with him. Those who are asleep in Christ will be raised first. He gives them the truth. Now they have the fear that, well, life is tough. Maybe we're living in that tribulation he told us about. And so he has to write this letter, and as we looked at in chapter 2, he's giving all this teaching on no, you are not in the tribulation. Remember, he started chapter 2 out here with, Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. We looked at those verses again and remember brought out that this is a continuation of Paul's encouragement of them and what he wants to see in their lives because if they are overwhelmed by this irrational fear then they will not be living the way that God wants them to live they won't be living and serving and growing in all the things that Paul has praised them for growing in 
So today we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And he's moving on from talking about the end times and focusing back on to them and continuing in that encouragement. And so as we looked at those things over the last couple of weeks, the, the man of lawlessness and this great turning away from God, us being the church and the restrainer being in us and what is going to go on in the world when we're gone, we don't look at this. I mean, it, things will get worse. They will only get better when Jesus comes back. But no matter how bad things get, even though unbelievers oppose us, the world around us opposes us, that we can take courage because God loves us and he will deliver us. While the world may oppose us, we can take courage because God loves us and he will deliver us. Today we'll have three points as we go through this. Verses 13 and 14, Paul will talk about the thanksgiving he has for their calling. Verse 15, he gives them encouragement to stand firm. And then we'll end the chapter in verses 16 and 17 with a prayer for strength. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for these words of Paul. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be here together this morning to, to look at your word. Lord, help us to learn and to be challenged from what you have recorded for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, as, as we look at this, our big idea is that even though unbelievers oppose us, we can take courage because God loves us and he will deliver us. We start out here with the thanksgiving for calling in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth. There's a lot in that one verse. I spent a, a, a good chunk on this today, but this is, it's a beautiful verse, and it is a beautiful transition that that Paul is, is bringing here as he is concluding this, this part of his teaching in this letter, and he, he's creating this great contrast. As you remember, the, the verses we looked at last week ended in, with 11 and 12, as we're looking at the, the great apostasy or the great rebellion against God with Verse 11, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be, may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And again, I think the end there is the key to that, that, that the sole purpose of these people who are going to buy into the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is that their hearts are set on wickedness and God is going to give them what they've always wanted, a leader who will lead them in farther into wickedness. And it will blind them to God's truth. But then he contrasts that with these believers. These, this world around them that persecutes them, that is heading for judgment because of their mindset of wickedness. And yet, he knows them and he can give thanks for them because of what God has done in their lives. 
And the first thing he says is he is thankful that they are beloved by the Lord. We always need to remember that, that God's love is, it is what has moved him to give us his son. The verse that we all know, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. I think I go to it every time we talk about love, but John, 1 John 4 is, is such a beautiful passage. In verses 9 and 10, when talking about God's love as the standard that we are looking to, he says, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That, I think it's, it's, it's neat. In Sunday school this morning, we were talking about prayer. And at the end of Sunday school, it was brought up that when we praise God, we need to praise him for his love for us because it is that love that has brought us into his family. As John says in John 1, that he has given us the power to be called the sons of God. And that is because of the love that God had for us. Even in our sins, even in rebellion to him, that he loved us and sent his son for us. He goes on there in verse 13, after he tells them that they are beloved by the Lord. He says, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It's an interesting phrase he has there. That, uh, break down some of it. That they, were, they were chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. I think the last part of it should give us a clue that something is interesting. What is he talking about here? If if this was talking about chosen for eternal life, um, God has done that through the gift of eternal life, through faith in his Son, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works that no man should boast. That sanctification is to be set apart. We look at our our sanctification in this life is that as I grow in Christ, I become more and more set apart for his service as I become more and more like Jesus. So I want to look at, at each one of these. Um, the first part that they were chosen, in the Greek, Paul chose an interesting word. He chose a word, halato, uh, that is not used in the New Testament to refer to election to eternal life. It is used in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, to point to God choosing Israel as a nation. That they were his chosen people. That of all the people in the world, God chose Israel. Um, if you want to write down a reference, one of those is Deuteronomy 6 and 7, where that word is used in the Septuagint. Um, and that is the word that we see here for chosen. And is not the word that is usually used, which would be election, eclecto, uh, in the New Testament for, uh, like in Ephesians 1, 4, 1, 3, and 4, looking towards eternal life. 
Uh, another one is Deuteronomy 26:18, And I think this is significant because of, of what we're looking at Paul is talking to them about and understanding it is important to understanding how he is encouraging them and why in the context that he is, he is giving them this teaching in. When we look at, at Israel's choosing, he did not choose the nation and force them all to be saved. He chose them and gave them the law, and he was their God. And when they were his people, they glorified him, and they were a light to the nations around them. That that was their role as his chosen people. There were people within the nation in every generation who refused to believe in the Messiah that was to come. That they weren't automatically, because they were born a Jew, going to be spending eternity with God. Just like if you were born into a, a Christian home now, it does not guarantee that you will spend eternity with God, that it is a personal faith in Jesus Christ and a belief in him for the eternal life that he has offered us that grants us that eternal life. And so starting out here with the chosen, what I'm trying to point out that I think he's picking, he's, he's used this different word because it isn't, he's pointing at something different. Uh, than election to eternal life, as he does in other places. Uh, and then he says, from the beginning, and again, I think when you see those two things together, chosen from the beginning, you automatically think of, of unconditional election before the, the earth was created. Again, you're in Ephesians 1-4 there. Um, but I don't think that's what he is getting at in this passage. But the word he uses from the beginning, when we think of God, I should probably just read it since I keep talking about it. I'll just start the Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. That is a picture of before this earth was created, before any of us ever existed, that there was this choosing that Paul talks about there, or election. The word he has here for from the beginning is a Greek word, archis, that uh, throughout its context, as it's used in the New Testament, it always points to a point in time. Some of those are, are way back. Uh, Jesus uses it in Matthew twenty four twenty one, looking back to creation, but again, that is a point in time. Uh, also to the creation of Adam and Eve, which was after the, the creation of the foundation of the world. It's used in 1 John about when John had taught them something recently, a point in time. It's used to talk about in Luke 1, 2, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The point is that this, whatever Paul is talking about here, I think he's talking about not, you know, when we think about God who is eternal, it is something hard for our minds to get around because we, we live in a timed structure of of hours and minutes and seconds, but also days and months and years. And, you know, I'm 41 years old. I can look back at things. I can look forward to things and understand everything in my life that has happened 
and look forward to things with a concept of time. But God exists outside of that. And so our trying to understand his foreknowledge and full knowledge uh, before the world was even created is sometimes hard to grasp, but we, we believe it and we know it's true. But I think what he's pointing to here is that they were chosen at a specific point. In time, before the earth was created, there was no time. Because God doesn't have time. He doesn't need time. It's not how he exists like we do. So my belief on what he is talking about here is that there's... I'll read quote from one of the commentaries I read this week from G.G. Uh, Finley. It says, It is doubtful where Archis, from the beginning, Op Archis is from the beginning, looks back further back to time than when God's call in the gospel reached the Thessalonians. Without some indication in the context, the reader would hardly think here of a pre-temporal election. The eclogia, the election of 1 Thessalonians 1.4, was associated with the arrival of the gospel in Thessalonica, which you see in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, and 9. She looked at not that long ago. But, and so my, my belief on what he's talking about here is that, the, and this will maybe make more sense when we get to what they're being saved from, that this choosing of their salvation was at the moment they believed the gospel. So that, so we've got chosen and salvation, or from chosen from the beginning, and then we get to salvation. Um, Paul tells them that they were chosen from salvation. I, I can't stress this enough. I, I think that we, I am guilty of it, that we can read a word and automatically, am I making noise? Is that better? Ah. Oh. No, it was me. I taught Sunday school. Just can't get good help these days. Thank you, Paige. Um, I, I know I'm guilty of it, that I will read something in Scripture and automatically assume something because of words, but words have... We shouldn't ever just assume what a word is saying. That we look at the context and, and what is being talked about uh, in one book I read on different uses of biblical words, when it talks about salvation, it says that over 70% of the times that sozo and its cognates are used in the New Testament, sozo is the word we translate as saved, it is speaking of something other than eternal life. Like when Peter is walking on the water and he begins to sink and he cries out to the Lord to save him, do you think he had hell in mind there? Or did he just not want to drown? The most common uses of sozo in the New Testament are from health issues and other things, but that salvation can, can mean a lot of different things. I think in the context of what Paul is getting at here, that we're looking at not salvation from hell, but he's talking about the, the rapture and the tribulation, that, that God has chosen them to be saved from that time. Uh, if you look at this is the only use of of salvation in first Thessalonians or second Thessalonians, but in first Thessalonians he uses it in turn back with me to first Thessalonians five, just a page or so back. In first Thessalonians five he says in verse nine, For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that is in the context of the rapture. That this is what Paul is pointing towards that they have to look forward to, that he was looking forward to. And again, that we should all live our lives like Paul did when he could say in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we who are alive and remain, 2,000 years ago, Paul thought he was going to see the return of his Lord and Savior. And he knew that it was true because, verse 9, God has not destined us for that time of tribulation, the time where he pours out his wrath on this earth. It isn't for his church. That's not what we have been, that's not what we're here for. But that we'll obtain salvation through that, through our Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes back for us. So understanding that is the one time he uses it there, and then he uses it one time in his second letter. I think he's in the context, this whole chapter in his original letter, this whole line of thought was pointing towards the tribulation, that they thought they were in it, he starts the chapter out and said, don't be so shook from what I taught you. Don't let hard times or bad teaching take you away from the truth that I gave you, that I'm continuing to give you. Don't let anything shake you from that. And so then as he is finished talking about the reasons why they aren't in that, then he is thanking God for them, and he is again thanking God that it is something that we don't have to face. It is an irrational fear on their part. They don't have to be sitting around worried about whether or not the tribulation has started. So if we look at it in that context, that God is doing that through the sanctification by the Spirit and the faith in truth, that, that we, are, we are going to be raptured because of our faith in Christ. But as we are in this world that is... Again, as we looked at last week, there, there is this rebellion that is coming that will be greater than anything we ever know. That's why it isn't an apostasy. Paul calls it the apostasy is coming. But while we are in this world that is where it has already started, as we looked at in 1 John where he talks about there are already many antichrists, but the antichrist is coming, that God giving us his spirit, God giving us truth allows us to withstand that to live for him in these times and look forward to that time when jesus christ comes back that that is that is what is reason for celebration that they are given this this new and different life that is not bound the same way that the lives of the world the people in the world that don't have jesus are that they are prisoners to sin, that they are living in that, living in rebellion to God, and yet we are being sanctified through God's Spirit, through our faith in Him that we are living in, through His truth that He has given us. At verse 14, it says, It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that 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 moment that he brought them the gospel, that he used Paul to preach to them, as we looked at in Acts, that he went to the, the synagogue and he, he reasoned with them, he gave them facts, he gave them scripture, and all of these things, and was rejected by the Jews, but the Gentiles bought in, and, and some Jews, and they, they accepted it readily, and that it was God using Paul 
to share the gospel with them that, that called him to them so that they may be glorified with Jesus Christ. That they would one day share in the, the splendor and honor that their, their Lord does already have. And that will start at the rapture. I think this, the, our ultimate glorification is in view here. When we, you know, at this time on earth as we are living in these bodies that still have the sin nature, that, that we do grow in sanctification, that as we let God use us in his service, that as we submit our lives to him, that we grow in that, and we do become more like Jesus, but one day we will be sinless and in glorified bodies and able to worship him perfectly and sinlessly. And that, I think, is what he is looking forward to there. Our second point here in verse 15, he gives them encouragement to stand firm. Verse 13, or 15, sorry. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The so then is the, the same Greek word we use for therefore. And so he's saying, because of all this I've just told you, do this. Paul wants us to consider everything that he's written to this point. And he's given them these, these compelling reasons that they need to, to stand firm in their faith despite the persecution they're facing, despite the sin that is around them and this world that hates them for being the light that exposes the darkness. I think this is mostly pointing to the context of where we're at, but it, in the, the letter, you know, he's told them that in one four to stand fast through their, their current distresses. You know, they were in persecutions and tribulations. In one eight to stand fast because the, this world will be judged. But we can know that God does have a plan and that he does not let sin go unpunished. When we looked at last week, we need to stand fast because of how strong this coming deception will be. And we need to be as, as strong of a witness to who God is through our lives as long as we can. As you've just brought up, that we need to stand fast because of our glorious destiny of being glorified with Christ. Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That, I mean, this is why we stand fast. Because we have so much that God has already done in us and we have so much to look forward to. And he tells them there to hold the traditions. When we talk about standing fast, it sort of implies a location. I think that location is standing fast in the truth. It's been a long time since we looked at it. I was looking at a couple places in Daniel the last couple weeks in Sunday school, but when you look at the start of the book of Daniel, and Daniel is taken away as a... a a young boy to this foreign land and he is offered all of these things of wealth and privilege and they offer him this food and this wine and all this stuff that is of the king's table what does Daniel do? He stands fast he draws a line in the sand we need to know where we are at in God's truth and stand firm in that and Paul sort of describes that here as the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. 
Now, there are several places in the Bible where traditions are viewed almost as, as dangerous. In Matthew 15, uh, the Pharisees go after Jesus' disciples because they don't wash their hands before they eat. And they accuse them of that, not that it was against the law, but that it was against the tradition of the elders. And Jesus' retort is, you know, why do you prefer your traditions to the law? That we need to be clear on what is human tradition and what is God's truth. And that is what Paul is talking to here. Not, Not the way you do something or these traditions that are made by man, but God's truth for our lives and how that should impact how we are living. That is what we stand fast on. That is what we stand firm on. That's where we draw our line in the sand. And in Paul's day, without the written canon of Scripture, especially to Gentile believers who didn't know uh, the Old Testament the way a Jewish believer would have it. It's these apostolic traditions that were being taught by the apostles as the church was growing and that these truths were being spread through letters, which God was inspiring, and now we, now we have his full writing to us. But for them, they didn't have a written scripture. They would get letters which would be read and would be taught from, and they had to take them and make them their own. They couldn't go, oh yeah, you know, we read that letter from Paul a couple months ago at church, and I don't remember what it said. Do you remember what it No. <laughs> they couldn't go back and look it up. They, they took it in, and they, they, they memorized it and memorized his teachings so that they could live it, because they couldn't read it like we read it. I think that, that is what he's getting at here with traditions. Not, not anything man-made, but this truth coming from God that they were having to pass to each other um, like you would pass a, a tr- family tradition on to the next. Lastly, we'll end here with the, the prayer for strength. Paul uses this prayer, as, as he does in, in other places in his writing, sort of as, as a bridge from one teaching to the next, that he is... He has been teaching them here in one or in chapter two, and in chapter three he's going to be giving them exhortation or encouragement, and so he's giving them this this prayer for strength as this this bridge from talking about his one topic and, and moving into the next. So verses sixteen and seventeen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Uh, you know, it's, we know these beautiful truths about our Savior, that he died for us, that he is at the right hand of the Father, that he is our mediator. What a, what a beautiful prayer that Paul gives here. I mean, may Jesus himself do this for you, give you encouragement and strength. Now, these are the things that Paul wants for them. He wants them to continue to grow in their faith, that this church that he's able to use as an example to all the other churches, and he wants them to succeed in their faith, in their love for one another, in their love for God. He doesn't just say, I really hope it happens. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope, by grace. When we look at the 
the things in our life, I mean, these, again, are beautiful truths. We already looked at God's love for us, but that should be at the forefront of our minds all the time. What God has done for me because he loved me. Not in this worldly sense of a love that makes me feel good about me, but a love that says, I want to do everything for you because I love you. And that is the agape love that God has for me. That is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. Because I was a sinner. Still am a sinner. But the sin that I had before I believed in Jesus separated me from God. That I was going to spend eternity away from God, but God provided a way because of his love. And if we ever forget that, we are doomed to fail. And so Paul, again, includes it here the second time in just a few verses. God has loved us. He's given us eternal comfort and good hope. In, uh, in secular Greek writings in the Koine Greek from that time, when philosophers and others would use the term good hope, it was pointing to an afterlife. And to this Gentile Greek audience, that is, is what Paul is using that term that they would have understood. That it might not make sense to us, but to them that would have immediately clicked as, yes, he has given us eternal life. And the comfort that brings. The comfort that brings, again, at a, at a funeral. That we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. All of those families I sat across from when I worked at the funeral home just had this emptiness in them. And it's not that the believers that I served didn't grieve. It's not that I, as a believer, have not grieved when I have lost family members and friends. But I am grieving, missing them, but I do have hope. I know in my own life that no matter how many years on this earth God gives me, that I get to serve him for eternity. I know when I, I lose someone that I love, when my mom was taken to be with the Lord, that, man, it was sad, it was hard. But I couldn't imagine what, what she was seeing. I might have told you this before, I think it was the most beautiful thing someone said to me at that time. I, I called a pastor friend who was going to be doing part of the service to let him know mom had died. And, and it was December 15th. He told me, he said, Craig, your, your mom's going to get to sing Christmas songs this year with the angels that sang to the shepherds. <laughs> She'll get to hear Luke tell the story. And those aren't just fantasies. It's, we don't know exactly what is, what is going on, but I know that Luke is there. I know the angels are there. And I know my mom's there. And someday I'll get to see her. That is comfort because of the good hope that God has given us through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Because of his love. And this is a beautiful prayer. Again, it comes all back to encouraging them to continue to grow in their walk. And he ends it with comfort and strength in your hearts in every good work and word. Which again, it's something that we talked about this morning. But that as we serve God, as we use the spiritual gifts and our time and the things that he has given us to build his church, to do good works, to serve other people, to grow in our faith, to grow to become more like Jesus Christ, 
that it makes us want to have more of it. It makes us want to experience that and not the lusts of the flesh. And so I think when we look at strengthening ourselves, you don't get stronger physically by sitting on the couch. I wish that was true. <laughs> I could be a bodybuilder. No, you, you get stronger by putting the work in. Whether that's at a gym or on a farm field, when you're using your muscles, those muscles are torn down and they grow back stronger. When we are using the spirit that God has given us, it strengthens us and it comforts us in our lives. Some of that teaching took a bit longer than I planned on. Again, that big idea that as he is concluding this teaching on the, the tribulation and again pointing towards the rapture and what they should be looking for instead of these things that have to happen before the wrath begins. That even though the unbelievers around us oppose us, we can take courage because God loves us and he will deliver us. I'll just cut it down to one point because I think it's the most meaningful to me. Remember what you were called for. Another common saying of Paul to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. I looked at it this morning in Colossians 1. He uses it also in Ephesians 1. What does that mean? What were you called for? You were called to serve him, to live for him, to live out the grace that he has given you in your life, to take the love that has been so poured out on you through his son and give love to each other to give love to the world around you, to make an impact for God, all the time glorifying Him. That this is, as believers, what we are called to do. That it isn't about feeling pretty good that I live a good life. and No, it's about serving and working and showing God's love. In our men's study this week, we're not moving very fast, we're still in Second Peter 1, but... In 2 Peter 1, Paul starts the letter out in talking about the gloriousness of their faith. And then he gives them a list of seven things that they need to add to their faith. And then in, eight, in verse 8, after he gets done listing all those things that they need to be diligently adding to their faith, that they, again, it starts out in 5, applying all diligence that they needed to add moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. But these were the things that as believers that had been given this great gift by God, they needed to have all diligence to add these things to their faith. And then he says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For, then verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. You know, that if we aren't being diligent to stand firm, if we aren't being diligent in knowing that God loves me and he is giving me the strength that I need and that he will deliver me, then Peter says what's going to happen is I'm going to be unfruitful. I'm going to be useless. You could compare me to a short-sighted person, which if I take my contacts out, I couldn't tell it was my own daughter sitting in the front row. 
You know, that's sort of the picture there. The person you feel bad for because they can't see the truth that's right in front of them. Man, look at what God has done for your life. He has purified you from your former sins, and you're not living your life like it. So that, to me, is my big application, is, is what am I doing in my life to make sure that I am remembering daily what God has done for me. Now, that is why we take the Lord's Supper. That moment should be a moment where we reflect and we make sure that we are right with God and that we thank God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ in taking the cup and the bread that remind us of his, his blood that he shed and his body that he gave but they, there need to be those things in our life every day. I think that's why it's so important to read your Bible every day. Because his truth takes us back there to who he is and who we are. It is why it's important to be devoted to prayer. Because when we are going to him in humility and praising him for who he is, it reminds us of who we are and what he has done for us. Uh, these things need to be important parts of our lives so that we are encouraged because we should be. We should be encouraged because of who God is and what he has done for us. Would you pray with me?